Hello and welcome to Folio the Podcast. This is Ingrid Velasquez. In this series, we are going to bring you insight, tips, and helpful advice to help you design better, build more efficiently, and grow your design and build firm. In this episode, we have Enoch Sears, the co-founder of the Business of Architecture, host of the Business of Architecture podcast, and author of the book, Social Media for Architects. As you can tell, Enoch and his team are in the business of helping architects and other design professionals like yourself drum up more business. Strap yourself in, because like Enoch says, This is pretty cool and pretty crazy. This podcast is brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification and data management software for the design and build industry. Our software streamlines the creation of product schedules, purchasing, invoicing, creating documents, and more. If you'd like to know more, please go to folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com. Hey, Ingrid, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. You did an excellent job. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Most people absolutely butcher that, but you did great. And I uh, want to welcome everyone out to today's call. Good to see all of you on here today. Uh, just a quick, I just want to give you a quick background on who I am and why you should listen to me. So back in 2008, I was laid off from the architecture firm where I was working. I uh, had a background in healthcare architecture. And during that time, I discovered at that time that my understanding of architecture was built around a basically a bunch of false beliefs about what architecture was and uh, that I needed to re-educate myself on what I call the business of architecture. And so I took a deep dive into that process. And along the way, I began to love this business side of architecture so much that now I focus my time on helping other firms dominate their local markets, win better projects and clients, and free up their time so they can love being an architect again. So I've literally descended into the pit of despair. And uh, if any of you are feeling frustration at times about clients that don't see value, where you're constantly getting your fees knocked down, then trust me, you're not alone. This is something that's been kind of creeping, happening over the past 10 years, where this conversation about architecture is changing. And so today we're going to be talking about some of the strategies that you can use just specifically with the way you present your services and your proposals to be able to combat this whole idea of you're too expensive. So, you know, last, last, actually a couple of weeks ago, I was on the phone with an architect who was telling me that they've been doing a lot of great projects in past years about, you know, they've had the firm for 30 years and they've won AI honor awards at the national level. So they've been awarded these design awards, but he said over the fast five to seven years, they've seen that their pipeline has slowly shriveled and it's, it's concerning to this firm owner. Uh, because things aren't the way they used to be. There's a lot of younger firms on in the market now. They have a lot more competition. And he's, what he's hearing more and more is this idea of, hey, your firm is too expensive. So just as an example, he was telling me about a client. They were going after an RFP. They were in the running. They were on the short list. There was actually, it was between them and one other firm. And they lost the job. So they went back. They did a debrief with the client. And the client basically said, well, you guys were considerably more expensive than your competition, than the other firm we're going against, right? So that hurts. That hurts to hear as an architecture firm owners that you were considerably 
more expensive. And you're wondering, okay, how can I deal with this? Because we know we're not making a huge pro profit on these projects. You know, that other firm was probably doing some sort of loss lead or something, but how are they even making any money? So we get into this idea of to be able to survive and not just survive, but also thrive in this market, we need to have strategies to be able to influence the perception of our clients. And so that's what we're going over today, specifically with regard to our proposals. So today we're going to go over four tips for writing better architecture proposals. And, uh, you know, in a, perhaps in another presentation, we can go out how to actually find the right clients. That's a whole nother conversation. But let's say you've already found the client right now and you're you're in negotiations and you want to present your services in the best possible light so the client gets the value, right? So here's our four, four we're gonna go over four mistakes and how to avoid them, right? These are four typical mistakes that I see architecture firms making across the board with their proposals, right? Our first mistake is the firm's focus on what they're charging the client, okay? Mistake number one, is focus on what you're charging the client. All right, so you're like, okay, Nick, uh, why is that a mistake? What else are we supposed to focus on when we're writing our proposals? Well, here's the thing. I wanna, I wanna illustrate quickly by telling a quick story uh, from another industry to help illustrate this because we're gonna be going over some of these psychological principles that actually influence humans because like it or not, the fact is, is that people generally don't make decisions that are 100% logical. Right. We know scientifically it's been proven that people, when they make, when we make decisions, that we make the decisions emotionally, but we justify with the logical brain. Right. So a few years ago, I walked into the tire dealership and I was looking to get tires for my, my Volvo. Right. So we have this nice little Volvo station wagon that we drive around in and it was time to get new tires. And so I was at the tire dealer and, and you know, the, 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 the shop owner pulled up his list of tires and he gave me his, there was a range of options, right? There was everything from $250 down to $89 each. And I was just confused by the options. And so I said, Hey, look, help me out here. Which one do you think that, you know, which one would you recommend I buy? And of course the Ebenezer, my inner Ebenezer Scrooge was eyeing the cheaper option, that $89 option, right? They all kind of seemed the same to me. They all had steel belts. They all were made of rubber. They all were rated for certain speed on the freeway. And, you know, he, he paused for a minute and he looked out into the outside the shop. He could see my car. He said, hey, that's your Volvo, right? I said, yep. He's all, yeah, so you probably have kids, right? You have the station wagon model. I said, yep. He said, well, you probably, you know, you probably got that car because it's really safe, right? And I said, you know, kind of proudly, why, yes, I did. I'm a smart consumer here. I care about my children. I, I did get it because it's safe. And uh, then he kind of looked back at me and he paused for a second. He said, well, then in that case, I definitely recommend uh, this, you know, maybe you don't need the high end, you don't need the Pirellis, but I definitely recommend this mid-grade version for safety since you're driving kids around. Now, as far as I know, I mean, I'm sure the cheaper option, $89 was like 100% okay. I'm sure those tires would have done the job. This is like the cheap architecture firm, right? It would have got the job done. Well, Sometimes that can be in debate whether the cheaper firms actually do get the job done. But in this case with the tires, I can safely say that I probably would have been okay with those $89 tires, right? But I went ahead and I bought the tires for $106 because what am I going to say when he says, well, you care about your, you know, you care about your kids, right? I'm not going to say, oh, no, 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 you know, they're replaceable. Give me the cheap option, <laughs> you know, that, that said no one ever, right? That was not going to happen. So basically just through that simple sentence. Uh, he he committed me and upgraded me to buying their $160 tire, which was you know almost twice as much as the cheaper option. 
Now, what's the key here, right? And when we go back to our mistake, okay? So the mistake is when we're writing out your proposals, when you're writing out your architecture proposals, a lot of times you're overly obsessed with the fee. You're overly obsessed with how much that fee costs. You're looking at that number and thinking, my goodness, that's a big number. What is our client going to say about this? Is there anything we could do to reduce the fee? Can we kind of sharpen our pencil a little bit? You know, what services are we providing here? Maybe we can cut back a few things, right? So this obsession with the fee, well, what ultimately happens is our clients respond to that because they become obsessed with the fee as well. Right. So what can we look at in terms of this conversation about proposals and the fee that doesn't revolve around just focusing on what we're charging the client? Okay. Well, if you think back to the example of uh, the, the Volvo shop that I gave, ultimately what he, what he knew intuitively after having sold tires again and again and again is that he needed to focus on what I really cared about. He needed to focus on something that I cared about more than the money. Right? So I'm going to repeat that. He needed to focus on, attend my focus to something that I cared about more than the money. Okay, So here's the key for you and your clients. Your clients have things in their business, in their organization, in their school, in their university, whoever the client is, that they care about more than the money. And it's your job as someone presenting architectural services to understand what that thing is. Okay, when you can change the conversation from this is the money and this is how much it's going to cost you, right? So a lot of times we're, we're approaching this from the idea of here's what it's going to cost you. No one wants to hear what it's going to cost you to invest in your services, right? Maybe a better conversation is what would it potentially cost you not to invest in my services? Okay, that's the example of the, the kind of that he gave, right? What would it cost me to buy a cheap tire? Well, I wouldn't be as safe, but he was connecting with something that I actually cared about. So let me know if this is making sense. You really need to understand the key driving motivation, like what is really driving the business decision of your clients. And this is something as, as simple as it sounds and as easy and as common sense as it sounds. This is something that I would say 90% of all firms get wrong because I see it again and again and again. So what's the fix here? What do we do instead, right? So the mistake is focusing on what you're charging the client. The, the fix is to focus on the value that the client, that your client is getting. Focus on the value that your client is getting, right? Now, here's, here's the tricky part, though. When we talk about value for clients, a lot of times architects approach this conversation from the architect approaches value from the architect's perspective, right? So the architect's thinking, okay, here's the value. Let's see my experience. The fact that we, you know, I have a huge portfolio of these projects. Even the fact that maybe we have few change orders in our projects, we keep them under a certain percentage, maybe, you know, 2% of the project or something like that, right? What else are architects saying? They're saying, you know, we have these team members, right? This is the value that we're providing, right? But the problem is, is that this conversation right here about value is from the architect's perspective. This is from the architect's perspective, right? That's sort of like the tire conversation, the tire, tire shop owner saying, well, you know, the reason you should buy this one is just because I believe it's best and I have 30 years of experience of selling tires and 
These are the ones that I find are best for people like you. And that conversation, of course, is going to go to a certain extent and it's going to be like, okay, I get it, right? But what he's missing there is he's not tying into what I really care about. So what's the alternate? You need to understand what it is that your clients actually care about, right? And what is that? Well, I don't know. It just depends. Every client's unique and different. And this is where the elements of persuasion and your ability to listen, to actually listen. Oh, this is another thing architecture firms say all the time is we listen. We listen, right? How many times have you heard that or said that? Yeah, we listen to our clients. That's what makes us different. We listen. Okay, great. Well, truly listening, actually what that would mean is that you would be able to tell them what they actually care about. So another example, um, there's a local architect here. His name's, he's here in the Fresno area where I live. His name's Art Dyson. He was, a, you know, a colorful character. He does this amazing organic architecture. He studied under Frank Lloyd Wright. He was the previous dean of Taliesin, uh, the architecture school at Taliesin. And uh, one time I had the opportunity to go on an AI tour of a recent building. It was a university building that they had just completed. And it was interesting to see the way Art talked about the project and the way that he approached the architecture. Right, So sure, he was speaking to a bunch of architects because it was an AI tour, and sure, he was talking about things like the material selections and the way the spaces flowed and some of the programmatic requirements, but he was also talking about things such as the student outcomes, safety, and security of the students. Okay, So do we see the difference between these two conversations here? One of these conversations, the one down here on the bottom, is about what the client actually cares about. I mean, these are real motivating factors, having students have good test scores, making sure that the daylighting in there encourages positive learning environments, making sure that students are going to be safe. You're not going to have some crazy, you know, incident at the school where people get shot by some crazy gunman, right? So these now, when we enter the conversation on this level, the conversation changes, okay? And so this is our number one mistake is focusing on what we're charging the client instead of focusing on the value that a client is getting. Let's move on to number two. Number two is an outdated pricing model. Okay. So what do I mean by outdated pricing model? All right. Well, let me give you an example here. So the key here is that human beings, and we're all human beings, right? We understand things through comparison, right? We understand the value of things through comparison. So this is one of our psychological triggers that I said I'd be talking about. Let me give you an example. So, you know, if you're a designer, you work in architecture, you're probably aware that the place where you place the windows has a big dramatic effect on how people perceive the space being dark or light. So for instance, if I have a, imagine a room and let's say along one side of the room, we have tall, skinny windows that are illuminating the interior. Okay. Now, what's going to happen is this room, if, is, if, especially if you're looking towards the windows, this room is going to appear to be comparatively dark. It's going to be experienced as a comparatively dark room. Now, if you flip around, if you're looking this direction, the room will seem light, right? Why is that? Well, because over here, we don't have anything bright on this wall. And so you're seeing the, the sunlight reflected in and scattering around the room. So this looking this way, it looks bright. However, if you look through the windows, you're going to experience the room as dark, right? This is the idea of comparison. And this is why, as architects, we love, when we want to get good lighting in a room, we love this idea of clerestory windows, right? Because we know that clerestory windows don't create a bright spot in the room. What they do is they bounce the light off the ceiling and they make this beautiful 
diffuse light throughout the room. Okay, so this is just an architectural example about how comparison influences what we perceive. Right now, there actually might be more light entering. There might be, if you measure the lumens or whatever, there might be more light entering this room with these big windows than in the Claire story example. Right, but it's all about the way we perceive it. Now, here's the deal when someone's looking at your proposal and you have a lump sum fee or you have whatever the fee comes out to be, let's just say you're going to be charging $100,000 for architectural services. And then they're comparing that against other proposals. Let's say there's another firm that's charging $80,000. You know, what do they see? Suddenly, this one seems exponentially more, the $100,000 fee, because they're looking at it compared to another fee. Even though the services might be different, the scopes might be different, we, we, as architects, we get this conversation, but our clients don't. Okay, so how do we deal with this, right? How do we win the proposal even if we're the expensive one? Well, one thing we can do is to get away from this outdated pricing model is we can use an internal pricing model. So what is an inter internal pricing model? Well, an internal pricing model is simply the model of giving our clients options, right? And so this is something that we see in, in you know, Software as a service, SaaS companies, software companies do this a lot. Uh, you know, it's typically this idea of you have three price options. And just for our example's sake, I'm just going to say, you know, say this is the, uh, say this is the bronze over here. This is the silver, and this is the gold. So you have these three actual pricing levels. So this one, let's say, is that. This one is a little bit is more expensive, and this one is our premium model right and then what we have over here is we have our list of services that are included in each of these models right so this is where we can kind of break down a little bit of the scope we want to make sure that these are large buckets we don't want to get too detailed but then we say okay the bronze one includes this this and this the silver includes this 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 and this and the gold includes everything right all of it and so what are we doing here right so now now what we're doing like if we go back to our example here right? Maybe our 80K model is right here, right? Maybe our 100K fee is right here. And maybe this one over here is 120 or 150K for, for services, right? Now, do you see what we're doing here? Now it changes the dynamic. If the other firm comes in and says, okay, our fee is 80K, we're like, okay, cool. Yeah, we have an 80K fee too as well. I mean, if you guys want to go with that option, we can do that, but we recommend this option for these reasons. And then we get into the conversation about value. All right. Now, the other benefit of moving ahead with an internal pricing model where we're giving them some options within our proposal is this idea of the 80-20 principle. And you'll have to excuse me, I'm a bit congested if you can't tell. So the 80-20 principle. So what the 80-20 principle tells us, there was this guy named Wilfredo Pareto, and he was an, he was an Italian economist. And he did a study of the land ownership in Italy. And what he, but what he discovered is interesting. What he found out was that 20% of the landowners owned 80% of the land. And conversely, the remaining 20% of landowners, the remaining 80%, so the large majority of landowners owned 20% of land, right? So this is the principle we see where things are heavily weighted on one side. And this sort of goes back to this conversation we'd seen in the news a lot recently, which is like this, the idea of the 1%, 1% 1 
right? We see this with economic striation, right? There's fewer and fewer people that possess more and more resources, right? So this is just a, this is an economic, it's also a scientific principle. And so what, how does this apply to what we do in terms of this internal pricing model? Well, we can take that same graph and we can actually graph out. So what we find is that this 80-20 principle is a fractal. So unfortunately, what happens if you just set, uh, let's say your proposal just has one option, you're just going to capture fees at a certain level. However, if you have multiple options in there, what's going to happen is it's going to bump up your average fee per contract, the average money your, your, your firm is making by X percent. Pretty cool. Right, so this is how you can instantly make every proposal more profitable without actually doing more work. Right now, you may have expanded scope of services, but you're not going to have to work any harder if they choose this one over here, right? Because you're getting paid for that work as well. So, this is how you get more money from every proposal. All right, so let's just quickly review what have we reviewed so far. Number, number one mistake is focus on what they're on what you're charging the client. What should you do instead? You should focus on the value the client's getting. Number two outdated pricing model. The fix for that is we need to understand that people understand things through comparison and we move to an internal pricing model, right? And then we talked about the 80-20 principle, okay? So let's move on to mistake number three. Proposal mistake number three is thinking your fee is directly tied to value. Number three, Thinking your fee is directly tied to the value, right? Well, based upon my, my previous number one, you might think, oh, well, what are you talking about, Nick? You're, you're contradicting yourself now, right? Up here, you said, focus on the value. And then down here, you say, oh, don't, th don't focus on the value. <laughs> well, I think you do need to focus on the value when you have the conversation, but here's the key, and this is the crazy part. So Robert Cialdini, who wrote the book, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, one of the, my favorite top five business books of all time, he talks about the fact that it is literally very, very difficult for people to separate the presentation of a product or a service from the, the benefits and the product or service itself. What does that mean? What this means is that people are judging the value of your service based upon the way that you present your service. They're judging the value of your service based on the way that, that, that you present your service. And so if you want to win better projects and clients, you need to have a good service. No doubt about that, right? You need to make sure you're actually providing a good service. Otherwise, you won't, you won't get referrals. But as long as you have a good service you're providing, then your energy needs to be focused in. You have someone focused on how do we make our presentation as compelling as possible? Because this is what people are going to be judging your value on is the presentation of your product or service, right? And so this goes back to thinking the fees directly tied to value. It's actually not. What it's really, what it's really tied to is how you present that value. So let me give you a couple examples, right? Um, recently, I was in Chicago and I noticed that they are doing a remodel. They're remodeling. Tiffany's is remodeling one of their flagship store right there in Chicago, right? And if you've ever been in a Tiffany's store, where they sell this very high-end jewelry, you know that it's a complete immersive experience. You walk into the room, you have the vaulted ceiling, you have the beautiful display cases of high-end jewelry that are fancifully lit, you have very well-dressed and elegant you know, sales consultants who will come approach you and ask you what you're looking for, there's soft music playing. So it's, it's a very immersive experience surrounding this jewelry, right? And if you happen to be lucky and they know who you are, they'll actually take you to another room 
upstairs usually where you're going to have a nice seating area and they'll bring out specialty pieces that aren't even on display. Okay, so someone goes to Tiffany's and they can spend easily 50K, 100K, 500K for a piece of jewelry. Okay, now I want you to compare that with your local jewelry store that's in your local mall, right? Now they may have similar jewelry, like Tiffany's may be selling something for 10K. You can find something very similar, perhaps not exactly the same, but very similar at your local jewelry store for 9.97. Okay, so that's a 10x increase in what Tiffany is charging and actually getting. Right? So what's the difference between these two? The difference is in, right? It's not in the product. Again, it's not in the product. In our case, it's not in the service. It's in the presentation of that product or in our case of the service. So another example, this is actually from Robert Cialdini's book Influences Psychology Persuasion. He opens the book talking about how, now he's very interested in these social dynamics and how pricing influences pricing psychology, uh, selling and persuasion psychology. And so he got a call from a shop owner, a personal friend that he knew who, who ran a, sh a shop selling turquoise jewelry. And she told him a story about how she was, she was rushing out of the, out of the, uh, rushing out to go on vacation. And she, she told one of the local store associates to mark down a whole section of jewelry that hadn't been sold. And so basically, she said, yep, I'm going to put, you know, this is 20% off or 50% off or whatever. All the jewelry in this case, half price, I think is what it was. All the jewelry in this case, half price. So she went on her vacation. She came back. And to her surprise, when she came back, everything was sold. She thought, well, that's great. We got rid of that jewelry. And, uh, but what, we sh what she was surprised at, this is where the shocker came in, is it had sold at twice the normal price. So the associate, in her rush to get out, the associate had, had misinterpreted this half price for double price, right? And basically, everyone thought that the jewelry in that case was twice as expensive as it was marked. Now, here's the key. Sometimes something as simple as how much something costs influences our perception of the quality and the relative value of that thing, okay? This is a good, this is a good, reason for actually pricing your services on the top end of the market to be seen as a premium firm, right? We're not trying to be the cheapest. We, we do charge premium fees, but we deliver premium value, right? And then having the presentation, when we go back to our example of Tiffany's, we have the presentation to back that up and to show why there's a greater value there. Because people are, people are actually, they're judging you based upon the presentation of your value, not the actual value. I know it's weird. I mean, how can you possibly really ever explain to someone the actual value? It's all supposition, right? So all they can base it on is the presentation of how you present your value. Okay? So there's mistake number three is thinking that fee is directly tied to value. It's not. Fee is probably more directly tied to how you present your services and the value thereof. Our number four mistake this is a crazy one, and this is one the architects do all the time. Buying into your client's belief about their budget. Buying into your client's belief about their budget. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the deal, right? Clients have a specific preconceived notion about what their budget is. And sometimes that budget is based in reality, and sometimes it's not. More often than not, it's not based in reality. Okay, so what happens? Well, clients come to you with this preconceived notion of what their budget is. Let's say their budget is this. 
$2 signs, but you know in reality that to be able to do that project, it's really going to take $4 signs to get that project done, right? So you have this tug of war where they're trying to say, oh, we don't have the budget for this. Not only do they think that they can get it done for less, but they also believe they don't have the money to come up with this. But let me ask you a question. How many times have you gone into a project where the client said, all we have is this, and then they ended up changing things, and by the end, they'd end up spending this? How many times has that happened, right? So here with just little anecdotal example, we can see that a client's budget is actually much beyond what they actually say they're willing to pay. As an example, my wife and I, when we bought our last house, the house that I'm in, that, that I'm in right now with my family, you know, we, our budget was about 50% less than what we ended up spending for this house. And the reason why is because we walked into this house and we instantly fell in love with it. And guess what? Our budget, which before we thought was this, we thought, okay, that's as much as we're willing to spend on a house. All we needed to do was have these emotional hot buttons pressed in terms of seeing the house, seeing the landscaping, imagining, you know, our kids having swim parties here and entertaining friends and boom, suddenly it's like, I don't care what it's going to take. I'm going to empty out my wallet. I'm going to turn my shoes upside down and look between the couch cushions and our budget went up to this. Okay, so here's the deal, right? Is clients will always come to you and tell you their budget is much less than they're actually willing to pay, but it's your job as a persuader and someone of influence and someone of expertise to be able to open up their eyes and help them see that not only is their budget higher, but they'll actually be happy to pay a much higher budget. Here's a couple here's a couple psychological techniques you can use for this mistake number 4, right? So first of all, what we need to do is we need to not buy into our client's belief about our budget. What we do instead is we as I said previously, we sell the value that our clients actually care about. Now, let's say for instance to illustrate some of the psychology behind this, let's say that I have you pick up two equally sized, well, let's say first of all I have you pick up this box. I have a box here and I'll say, okay, pick up that box and tell me how much it weighs. Okay. So you pick up the box and you're thinking, Hmm. Okay. You know, I think this box, you're like, Hmm, I think that box weighs, you know, seven pounds. Okay, cool. Now let's say that I, I switch around our little experiment here and I give you another box. It's the same size. And let's say that this box really weighs five pounds, right? And this, so we have another box over here. And let's say that this box weighs 15 pounds. Or let's, let's just say, let's, let's let me go back a little bit here. Let me say, let's say this one weighs seven pounds, right? So there's a very fine gradation between these two, these two boxes, okay? Now, what would happen if I had you, if I had you hold these individually, first the five pound one, and then, uh, you know, the next day I came back and I had you hold the seven pound one, you might say they were both about eight pounds. You'd have difficulty telling much of a difference between the two boxes. However, if I have you hold one box in your right hand and one box in your left hand, so let's say this one over here is going to be your left hand, this one over here is your right hand, you would easily be able to identify this box over here as the heavier box. Okay, so this goes back to our idea about comparisons, that we understand things through comparison. So one of the psychological things you can use here in this, in this portion of your proposal is this idea, it's called anchoring and adjustment. I want to tell you about a study that two economic researchers did. One of them won the Nobel Prize for his work on this, and it's called anchoring and adjustment. Anchoring and adjustment. All right, so they did this experiment where they had participants spin a wheel that landed on either the number 10 or the number 65. 
right? So here's our wheel and they would spin it and it either landed on 10 or it landed over here on 65. Now, after they did that, they then had them do a task completely unrelated to spinning the wheel, which in this case was guessing the number of African countries in the United Nations. Now, here's what's interesting. Even though these numbers, 65 and 10, are completely unrelated to the question about the African countries, these numbers right here, the 65 and the 10, influenced the participants' final guess. Isn't that crazy? right? So people who spun the 65, they actually guessed a higher number of countries. People that had the number 10, they guessed a lower number of, of countries, okay? This is called anchoring and adjustment. So what's happening here is the number, the original number they're exposed to is the anchor. And then ultimately, when people are faced with some decision about a number, even though they're unrelated, if it happens in the same conversation, the same sequence, they then adjust down or up from the number that's been placed as the anchor, okay? So let me just give you an example. Dr. Robert Cialdini explains how anchoring can make a number seem smaller than it actually is, and this is where it enters into your negotiations and your proposals, okay? So he tells of a contractor who meets with a client to present a proposed budget, and the contractor opens with a joke about having a million-dollar budget, right? So this is the first thing he says as he presents the proposal. He talks about having a million, a million dollar budget. Now, by doing this, the contractor is then anchoring his listener to that number. Okay, so when he finally presents his actual budget, which is far below a million dollars, let's say it's 750K or 500K, this number seems reasonable by comparison, right? Now, while throwing out a large number early in the conversation doesn't make your proposal a sure win, it definitely cuts through the thick air around pricing and used with other psychological strategies that we've talked about today, gives your client the chance to feel that they're getting a spectacular value, right? So if we go back up to our example here about internal pricing models, you could actually have this option over here could be much higher. You know, this one could be the 700K model, you know? I actually take my kids out there and we build it ourselves. <laughs> well, that'll cost you 700k, right? And another way to do this is when you're presenting, when you're presenting these numbers, if you swap them, so here's how to use anchoring to your benefit, right? When you're presenting, let's say you have a pricing matrix where you have your three different pricing models. A little flip on this is you could have the most expensive option over here on this side, okay? So here's a couple ways that you as an architect, designer, design professional can use this principle of anchoring and adjustment into your proposal and negotiation process, right? So first, you can discuss the overall cost of similar projects. Discuss your fees second, right? So number one, focus the conversation around project cost, not fees. And this is where graphics can be very, very useful, right? So you could have, let's just say in your proposal, you have something talking about you know, how much projects generally cost. So here's our, our circle of this is 100% of project cost. And then you could basically break this up by how much things are going to cost, right? So you could say, you know, contractors overhead and profit right here. You know, the entire design team, their fees right here. You know, this is the, you know, right here would maybe be the, um, the actual construction cost to build it. You know, over here, this might be the entitlement fees. Maybe, maybe this is the labor here, and maybe this over here becomes the, uh, the actual cost of materials, right? You get the picture here. 
And if you want to make this even, even more shocking for your clients, you can include the operating cost of the building over the first, let's say the first, you know, 15 years or the first 10 years. So what, what that starts to look at is really interesting. It actually looks like this, like here's, the, here's what we charge. <laughs> here's what the architecture and design team is going to charge right here. Here's the operating cost of the building. And here's the rest of the project cost, you know, which probably is even less than that. It's probably something like that. You know, so here's, here's the project cost. Right, so you can see that the design team, in comparison, you know, let's say this is seventy-five million dollars. You know, our fees down here are seven hundred fifty k. Right, a small, small fraction of the entire operating expense of this project over the lifetime. However, however, and this is where the conversation gets interesting. However, the design actually influences how much the rest of this stuff costs right? So the most important money you're spending or not spending is actually these few dollars right here. So it's very careful. You got to be very careful how you spend these, these dollars. And that's why we have our proven process for making sure you get the best return on your investment. And here's how it works. And then you go into your presentation. Uh, the other thing that you want to do, um, here's another tip, right? Number one is discussing your project cost, not fees. Number two is be the first to the table. So it's better to be the high proposal and first than the high proposal on the last, right? Because what happens there is being the first to the table allows you to educate the client on the value your firm offers and why your fee is the best logical choice for their proposal. So if you come in first, what I would also recommend you do is you get your client to agree that they will have a conversation with you about all the proposals before they make a decision, right? So if you're the first, what you do is you get your client to agree that they will, you know, you'll have the last word, you're able to meet with them to discuss all the proposals before they make a decision. Okay, number three, you know, if another firm undercuts your fee, you have the opportunity to explore with your client what, um, what the other proposal may be leaving out. So all it is, it's a matter of painting the picture. What we want to do is we want to paint the picture for our clients based upon what they really care about. Okay, and how to do that? Well, that's science and persuasion, that's psychology. And that's where our architects need to become better, better uh, communicators and better understanding what their clients really want so they can paint that beautiful picture of what their clients really want. Okay, so does anyone have any questions for Enoch? Okay, from Diane, uh, book recommendations, please. Sure, Diane, go check out Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. Uh, that's definitely one thing I would recommend doing. Um, uh, there's a number of books on value-based pricing you'll want to check out. So I'm just looking here on my bookshelf. There is a book by McDivitt and Wilkinson called Value-Based Pricing. You can get that off of Amazon. There's another one by, uh, by Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, Value-Based Fees. That's worth a read as well. Okay. Now, yeah. one oh, thing, I, go ahead. Um, you know, I do help firms attract and win better clients. And if you'd like to find out more about that and apply just to have hop on the phone with me, you can tell me about your firm's situation and perhaps there's something that I can do to help you meet your goals. I invite you to go to this web address. It's arcmarketing.org forward slash apply and you can apply for a phone call with me or someone on my team. Awesome. That's just what I was about to ask you is um, where they can find you if they need more help. There's a lot more, so I'm sure people are going to want to, um, you know, spend a little more time with you and talk about their specific needs as a firm, things like that. So, yeah, artmarketing.org slash apply. 
Yep, that's right. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks, Ingrid. It's been good having Thank you for having me on today. Thank you, Ingrid. This podcast is brought to you by Folio. Folio is a product specification and data management software for the design and build industry. Our software streamlines the creation of product schedules, purchasing, invoicing, creating documents, and more. If you'd like to know more, please go to folio.com. That's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com. Again, that's F-O-H-L-I-O dot com.